Welcome to How We Run, the podcast about nonprofit success. I'm Trent Stamp, CEO of the Eisner Foundation. And I'm Julie Lacature, and I help nonprofits with strategy, fundraising, and digital media. On today's episode, Trent and I talk about the roles and responsibilities of being on a board of directors, and we talk to Nikki Cantor Shulman of City Year, whose job is to manage a 30-person advisory board for tips on how to keep them involved and motivated. Trent, today we're talking about board of directors. Have you ever been a board member? I have been a board member for at least 10 or 12 organizations. Absolutely. Excellent. Um, what what makes it a good experience or a bad experience as a board member? Or maybe you've never had a bad experience as a board member. Oh, sure. Every seasoned board member has had good and bad experiences. And I, and I advise people on boards that if the experience isn't good to get off. There are so many good nonprofits in this community that desperately need good, engaged board members that if you're not having a positive experience, politely resign and go find an organization that you will feel valued for. So for me, a, a good board experience is when I have a clearly defined role something that I know I can do, something that I'm good at, um, and I feel like I'm being utilized for what I can bring to the table and not being asked to save the organization in any way, not being asked to bail the organization out financially. Of course, we're going to make a gift. Every nonprofit organization should have a give or get policy that is mandatory for their board members. I don't care whether it's $500 or $500,000, whatever it is, and that should explicitly be discussed up front so there's no confusion. You should never have to go looking for your board gifts at the end of the year. They should be there. They should be ready. They should be something you can count on every single year. But I feel that, you know, for a for a good board member, for a good board experience, I want to have a positive working relationship with staff. I want to have a positive working relationship with the board. And I want to feel like I have a clearly defined role for what it is I can do for the organization. I don't need to meet 8, 10, 12 times a year. <gasps> no. Um, Who's some, asked you to meet 12 times a year? No. do that. Clinics in California are required to have 12 board meetings a year. All right. Um, and, you know, they can have eight of them by phone or something. But if you're a good board member, you, you know, Putting 12 events a year on your calendar is a difficult thing to do. So good relationship with the board, good relationship with the staff, and a clearly defined role. Obviously, I need to believe in the organization, but that's you know that's an obvious one up front. Um, so today we're talking to Nikki Cantor from City Year, who manages their 30-person advisory board. That's too big. You think that's too big? I do. Yeah, why? Because I think at that point, it's almost impossible to do any work with the whole board. It becomes committees, it becomes work outside of the board meeting. And I think that most board meetings just become consent agendas because it's impossible to get 30 people on the same page mechanically during any one particular meeting. So I would rather you you split your organization up, have a fundraising board, have an advisory board, have an alumni board, but keep it 10 to 15 people and have separate meetings. Uh, well, she talks about how they manage that 30 but I person. I love City Year. I wish yeah, them the best. I know. And if it's working for them, more power to them. Yeah. But what do you, I'm the talking what, head here Yeah. Today, what, do you like, so. what do you like about City Year? Uh, I think I like that they're, they know exactly what it is they do. They really do. Um, they haven't been swayed by people trying to tell them to be something else. And so I think they know what they do. They do it well. Um, they've been in the game for a long time. 
Um, and I think those jackets are really cool. <laughs> they have t-shirts in LA now. And I actually asked for one at one point when we were a funder, they refused to give one to me. <gasps> they said they're expressly kept only for the core members, well, that's which a, I actually respected the heck yeah, out of. I like how much of um, intent they have behind their brand. Uh, yes. They are over. They gave me a hat. Oh, well, you know what the hat means. <laughs> I have no idea. O old guy that can't have a jacket, probably. <laughs> <laughs> he meant this person asked for a jacket. Can you believe this guy? Yes. Uh, they're over to t-shirts now for, you know, it's warm here. <laughs> um, I saw City Year get honored at a Dodgers game, and I felt so bad for them because it was 96 degrees out. And because they're so good about their brand, their core members were all in their fleece-lined jackets standing on the field, just sweating. Yeah, well, and I was if like, you want to do this kind of good work, you're going to have to make some You're going to have to sweat. Okay, all right. Yeah. All right. Blood, sweat, and tears, literally. My name is Nikki Cantor-Shulman. I am the Chief of Staff at City Year Los Angeles. Nikki, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Um, so you work at City Year yes. as the Chief of Staff. City Year Los Angeles. City Year Los Angeles as the Chief of Staff. Mm -hmm. And I feel like City Year is a pretty well-known organization because there's 28 locations around the country. 29, 29 now? City Year Buffalo. That's great. Mm -hmm. When does City Year Buffalo open? This coming school year is our oh, first year. How exciting. Okay, mm -hmm. so there's 29 locations mm -hmm. across the United States. Can you tell us a little bit about how City Year works in Los Angeles? So here in LA, we work in 32 of the highest need schools in Los Angeles. We have about 300 AmeriCorps members that work in those 28 schools. And for people that don't know, what is an AmeriCorps member? An AmeriCorps member is um, someone between the ages of 18 and 24 who's given a year of service. Um, to our country. So between, sometimes it's between high school and college, sometimes it's a gap year during college, sometimes it's after college, but they are um, dedicating their year to making our country better in a variety of ways. Were you an AmeriCorps member? I was not. I was. You were? Yes. I, I knew that. What yeah. program? Um, I was an AmeriCorps VISTA. You were? Uh-huh. Free labor. I had <laughs> low cost low labor. Low cost labor, exactly. Uh, I had my sweatshirt for a very, like until recently. Mm, those it, sweatshirts are like really hot they were. Commodities. They really were. I remember fighting for it, being like, you gave one to all the AmeriCorps members, the AmeriCorps VISTA members need one too. Definitely. <laughs> um, so now you mentioned the headquarters are in Boston. So, mm -hmm. you, so you're the satellite office out here in Los Angeles. Can you talk to me about the challenges and differences of being a Los Angeles office? I've lived in Boston and LA and I can say they're a little bit different. They definitely <laughs> are. Um, so City or Los Angeles is the largest site of the city or network. And we're larger than many city or regions. So it's a little bit of an interesting dynamic in the sense that um, headquarters has a lot of processes and policies that they establish for sites of various sizes. Um, our budget locally is about $13 million, which, like I said, is the budget of many of our small sites put together. Headquarters sets the tone and sets the stage for everything that we do. And headquarters determines our program and the broad strokes of everything we do. And then City or Los Angeles adapts it to our local site. Um, we adapt it to working in our school district, to working in a city where public transportation kind of sucks, where people are going or traveling sometimes upwards of an hour to get to their site. So those are the, the local issues that we deal with and that we have the jurisdiction to deal with at our site. Um, there are things that that are out of our control, how we do our program, um, the, the materials we use, the language we use, things like that sometimes are set out by headquarters, but we actually have a lot of flexibility, which gives us um, a lot of control and a lot of 
customizability of the work we do, particularly when it comes to um, the development side of things. Our yeah. program is is more set in stone than our development side, I would say. Yeah, you touched upon an interesting point that I've seen at a lot of other nonprofits that are new to Los Angeles or in, a, in LA and in other places, which is the um, transportation issue, but just the size of LA County. Yeah. So when you have operations that in other cities, it's like, like in Boston, where you're like, we have volunteer training at this time at this location and everyone can get there because mm-hmm. it's centrally located. We don't have, yeah, we don't have that flexibility. So we have specifically chosen to put our office in downtown LA because it is one of the most metro and bus accessible places. That being said, much of our donor base is on the west side of LA, which, and they don't often come downtown. And how long of a drive is that for someone oh, yeah, that for doesn't, someone who doesn't live in Los Angeles? I would say it's anywhere between 20 to 40 minutes, but it feels really far for some folks who whose world is, um, is more centrally located to a different part of Los Angeles. I think 40 minutes is so generous to get to the west side. <laughs> <laughs> it depends on the I feel time like of you day. were about to say and three hours exactly. and I was going to be like, yes. If you ask someone in Santa Monica how long it would take them to get downtown at rush hour, they would say four hours. They say, I'm going to get a hotel and exactly. stay there I'm overnight. going to take a helicopter. Yeah. So that being said, we have the challenge of thinking about our AmeriCorps members who are serving in communities that are very far from our donor base. And how do we balance the needs of our donors and the needs of our AmeriCorps members and the needs of our staff to find a place that is accessible. Right. Um, we have made the choice to make it downtown Los Angeles, which works for 75% of the people involved. That being said, we often have to have meetings in other locations and other times of day to accommodate other groups. And you're spending more time than other locations, probably getting to people, going to people. Absolutely. And I bet you do a lot of explaining of that. Absolutely. There's time and there's also cost involved. So we we oftentimes have to pay for our core members' transportation to get to a donor meeting or we'll have to offer to pick someone up to get somewhere because it will seem daunting. Yeah, you mentioned needs of donors. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like implicit in what you're saying is that the needs of the donors are to meet the AmeriCorps members, are Absolutely. to meet and interact with the program. Absolutely. Which in a city as large as Los Angeles provides a challenge. And in a city which most urban cities are, I would say that the the high need populations um, and the highly resourced populations often don't interact very often and they seem very far away, whether they are geographically or not, they seem far away. And so for some of our donors, getting to an area that our AmeriCorps members serve in might seem very daunting um, and vice versa for our AmeriCorps members to go to a meeting in an area they've never been to might seem far, scary, things like that. So we actually do put a lot of thought into making these things accessible and to to make that divide much easier to cross. So one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is to talk about the work you do with City or Los Angeles's board. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a site board here. The governing board is in Boston and they exactly. are more like what you would think a regular board is, but you have a site board here. You can you tell me? A, yeah, can you tell me about them? Absolutely. So our board right now is thirty people, which is rather large. <laughs> yeah, it's grown since I've been there. It is really a who's who of really the the key industries in Los Angeles. So there's a lot of studio heads, um, heads of production companies, media companies, um, we consulting firms. We try to look at the map of what are the key industries in Los Angeles and how can we get representation there. Um, we've been really lucky with 
We had a fantastic founding executive director who rallied together an incredible group of people between, I would say, the credit goes to her and to um, our founding board members who just pulled together the the best and the brightest in LA, which has been amazing. And from there, we've continued to grow and expand the board, which has gotten us to 30, which is pretty, pretty large. 30 is really, really large. So how do you keep that many people interested and engaged? That is a really great question. Um, There is no one size fits all for board members. And so one of the things we've had to do is think really strategically about engagement plans, for lack of a better word, for each board member. So thinking through both sides of the equation, what is the board member hoping to get from being a member of this board? And what are we hoping to gain from the relationship? So for some board members, it's really important to show up and to be there in person. And we, you know, they're a really integral part of the conversation and there are things like that. Other board members, just their introductions alone end up being enough. Um, and so we try not to have, we, we have some basic level of engagement that we hope. We hope people come to board meetings. We hope that they come to some key events, but we don't have the same expectations across the board. Um, some people want to give financially and be less involved in the day-to-day. Some people really want to get in the weeds and aren't able to offer the same financial um, benefit. We do have a give or get, but um, but the spectrum varies, obviously, between the capacity of our board members. Yeah. So what goes into an engagement plan? Like, what are the elements of it? You mentioned that it's, you know, what do they want to get out of it? Mm-hmm. So what we think about is, um, we think about a financial goal. What is this person capable of? And again, give or get. So, and that's in discussion with the person, absolutely. or you? We sometimes you're guessing. <laughs> it's definitely a two way street, and it's it, it's in discussion with them, with what they reasonably can can give on their own, and then also we offer suggestions based on what we have learned and and who we think they can get to. Um, but it's all it's all very. Um, What's the word? It's a two-way street. It's not, we're not saying to them, I think you can bring in $100,000. Right. That's your goal for the year. So it's very much in discussion. And sometimes it's also not super explicitly said to them. We'll say to the, you know, we'll say to ourselves, like, they gave 10 grand last year. Like, you know, we think based on who they know and what they're doing and their new job and all these things, we think they maybe can increase to 15. So let's think about that for the coming year. Maybe we'll ask them, maybe we won't, but let's think about that. Okay. So one is that there's a- One is there's a financial financial goal, exactly, that we think through. Um, Then there's what I call an engagement goal in terms of what are the key events that we think this person will respond to and are most, would most benefit from on both ends. So we have several marquee events throughout the year. Some are more programmatic, some are more splashy in Hollywood, some are more um, cerebral. And we think through, we, we recognize that we ask a lot of our board members, but we also don't want to push everyone to go to everything because then right. it feels like every week we are asking you to go to something. Right. And there's a big difference between someone who gets joy out of doing a classroom visit or being um, being part of like a, like a graduation ceremony mm-hmm. and somebody that wants to go to like a poker event. Totally. And so we think through, let's look at our calendar of events and let's think through the year and say, you know what, this person is best suited to go to this one, this one, this one. So let's calendar that out. And again, we might not share this particular information at the beginning of the year with this board member, but when we send out the all board email that says, hey guys, opening day is in September. 
we think through, you know what? There's these 10 board members. We'd love them to be there. We'd love some of them to speak. We think that if they sit in the front row, they're going to just dig it or they're going to get fired up. And so we might send one-off emails or make specific phone calls to those board members saying, you know what? You've never been to opening day. You got to come this year. Or I know we ask a lot of you. This one is really important. And if you make those calls infrequently enough, then you can help guide them towards the things that you think would be beneficial. And you've thought about it beforehand. So exactly. We've plan. thought about it beforehand. All right. So we have financial goal, engagement goal. Anything else going into that plan? The other thing we think about is we have a fairly large staff at City or Los Angeles, and um, we recognize that that not the, our executive director cannot be the only point of contact for each board member. So we think really strategically about who is going to be that board member's secondary or even third step contact throughout the year to help balance that engagement. So we can make sure that board members hear from us enough, but not from the same voice and that not everyone only needs to go to the executive director for every question. So um, it's we have a like a team, I would say there's about five or six of us and we think through who's the best person to be this person's secondary contact. And then we help develop that relationship. And um, we sometimes are explicit about it. And sometimes it just grows over time. But we want people to recognize that they have other outlets they can go to. And also that our team is diverse and has a lot of different, op, you know, different skills and different things you can go to for different people. So you don't have to continue to rely on that one person. That's great. So when you say, um, you know, develop a relationship mm -hmm. and so you've got another staff person there who has another job that they have to do yeah. and that probably has some emails to answer. Yes. Um, how do you make time for them or like what are the are there steps you give them to develop that relationship or are there tactical things there? That's a great question. So sometimes so I should say that all of the members of the, the larger board engagement team are on the development team. Mm -hmm. So the board is somewhat their responsibility. It's not, we are not asking people totally un, with jobs unrelated to board development to come to be part of this team. Um, some, we are not, I, we're not very didactic and saying like, here is email copy, please send this to right. your contact. But we'll make sense. So if we'll say, you know, this board member A, we'll call her Susie, one of our goals for her for the year is to have a small salon in her home to introduce some of her friends to the organization. It might make sense then to have our individual giving director be her point of contact throughout the year to help grow and shape that event. Or someone else might be on our board to represent their corporation because their corporation is a big sponsor. It might have our corporate development, it might make sense to have our corporate development manager be that, that person's point mm -hmm. of contact. So we try to make it as natural as possible so that it doesn't feel totally out of the blue. How do you recruit new board members? So. Or are we you have, like, we're, we have 30, we, the doors think, are closed. You think, it depends. We, you know, so there's a formal and an informal, there, there's the formal process we go through and then there's the informal process. I will say we're always looking for new board members. One thing we're really focused on right now is diversifying our board um, racially from a gender perspective and then also sector diversity. We are a very entertainment heavy board. So we're always looking to add people in those sectors. Um, so that being said, so we have a governance committee that is tasked with uh, recruiting new board members. And some of that is a very traditional process of creating lists and who knows who and let's go reach out and things like that. And then there's the informal process where one of our board members will come to us and say, I just met this amazing person or I'm in YPO with this amazing person. You have to meet them. And then they sort of 
get bumped on the list. And we we then have a very formal process um, by which we onboard them and right. the steps they can take before they can become a board. Which I think is so smart because a lot of times people are thrown onto boards. And yes. I can't believe how many times I've talked to board members that don't even know how to explain what the organization does because Absolutely. they haven't been through an onboarding process. Exactly. So, so tell have, me about yours. So we have a process by which we require every person to go to a school visit and meet with AmeriCorps members before they are even put up for a board vote. Um, they have to meet with our executive director, they have to meet with our board chair or some member of the governance committee to clearly understand our board expectations. So we have written out in written form um, the guidelines and expectations for what it means to be a board member. What are the, what's the financial commitment? What is the time commitment? What is expected of you? Um, we then put it up to a board vote. And then we also then have an onboarding process internally where we put together a book for them of all the relevant information. They then sit down with the executive director or some other member of the staff to go through that information. Um, and all this happens before they attend their first board meeting. Yeah. I should have asked this question before I asked that mm -hmm. question, but is there a vetting process where, I mean, it, is it? There is a vetting process. Um, there isn't a traditional, like there's not a scorecard that we go through, mm -hmm. but um, I would say as we look at the guidelines of what is expected of a board member, the vetting process inevitably comes up of, can they meet these requirements? And then, like I said, do they provide a new perspective to our board? Are they bringing in a new community, a new industry? Um, even, it sounds silly, but in Los Angeles, like geographically, do they represent a different part of the city? Mm -hmm. You know, are they from Pasadena instead of Santa Monica? We don't have anyone from our board that's from that far east, you know, things like that. Um, so there, yeah, there's, and then the governance committee decide, makes that decision. Okay. Made up of board members. Yeah. So not every, it's not like an open, open call and everyone gets on. Definitely not. Well, that's a, that's a better way to get to 30 then. Yeah, exactly. But, and then I should say that we also, um, we occasionally offboard people who have, um, feel like they've served their term or whatever. We don't have traditional term limits, mm -hmm. but, um, so there, it's not a constant upward trajectory. Occasionally we'll have people roll off. That's great. Um, when they roll off, is there an exit interview or do you get information from them or, or oh, does yeah, everyone always, leave angry, Nikki? No, it's actually, everyone usually leaves pretty, pretty happy. It's usually a collaborative conversation of either I feel like I've done everything I can or I took this new job and I just can't possibly do this anymore or I'm moving to Chicago. I would say there's no one that has left disgruntled. That's great. Yeah, and I think that's really important because I think you should never get important. to a point with a board member where it gets to that point. There should be a mutual conversations along the way. Yeah. No one should just like throw up their hands and leave. So one thing I hear all the time about boards um, from people that work at nonprofits is they say either it's a variation of my board can't fundraise, my board won't fundraise, or how do I get my board to fundraise? Um, do you have a variation of that question? It strikes me that you don't. Oh, no, we definitely. Well, it depends on the person. I think our board is a strong fundraising board, and that is made pretty clear from the beginning that that's an expectation. But people's capacities and interest level in fundraising vary widely. And I think it's about, and I, not to repeat myself, but I think it's, again, about a, not a one-size-fits-all fundraising plan for a board. It's thinking through with each individual board member, how do we best leverage their network? Some people like asking their friends for money and some people don't. Some people just want to make an introduction and let us take it from there. And that's fine. It's thinking through how can you support your board members in making those 
asks. And doing whatever they feel comfortable doing. Exactly. Whatever they feel comfortable. Sometimes people will say to us, I don't even want to be involved. I'm going to give you their email address. Just tell them I told you to email, like that I told you to do it. Uh And that's fine. It's up to us as a staff to staff our board members and to resource them in whatever way they need. Because everyone can be a fundraiser. We're not asking people to open their Rolodex and call everyone in their Rolodex to give us $1,000. We're asking people to think creatively about their networks and to talk about City Year wherever they go. You can fundraise in a million different ways. And then also, I think the other thing I will say is I think people too often focus only on fundraising with their boards. And there's a lot more that boards can do. And the more you get them engaged at a programmatic level or whatever level works for you, the more willing they will be to fundraise because they will understand the why behind why you need that money. You're not just saying, we need a million dollars if we're going to keep our doors open. It's we need a million dollars because we want to expand to these four schools because then we can reach these five populations or whatever that might be. They're just going to be more excited and interested in fundraising. Yeah, I... um I feel like people always ask me, like, what are the words I say to raise money? And I always am like, <laughs> it's not really about the words you say. It's about right. the enthusiasm you have or the, the relationship. Yeah. yeah, the relationship you have with the person, you know. And it's just like every your relationship with the board member and is not one size fits all. Just the same way that you talk to every donor is not one size fits all. And so it's about also equipping your board members with a variety of tools they can use with their friends, yeah. knowing that it's not just here's a one-pager email to everyone you know. Yeah. You said um, when you were talking, you said it's uh, our responsibility to resource our board members. Mm-hmm. So what kind of resources do you provide for your board members? So is it, it not just a magic one-pager and a map to the money exactly. tree? <laughs> it's a link that just says, here's everything you need. Perfect. Exactly. Um, there's a couple different things we do. One thing that we started last year that I'm actually excited about is something that we're calling a board resource guide, which is basically one-stop shop in a book that you can keep on your desk that has all of the basic high-level city or information that you might need as a board member. It has the board list. It has the schools we serve in, um, some of our key funders, things like that. So that if you're ever in conversation and something comes up that you might not know, because there's a lot of information we expect our board members to keep in their head, it can be right at their fingertips. The other thing I will say is we resource our board members by being there and being present and saying, tell us what you need and offering it and saying, like, I will draft that email for you. I will, oh, you like that invitation? I, or, or I'll make that invitation for you. Or I'll update our website to say that or whatever that might be. You know, we we come from a place of customer service when it comes to our board right. members um, that I think helps them do their jobs better. Yeah. I think an underutilized tool is I will draft the email introduction so you can introduce me to this person. Absolutely. I think I brought someone to tears once like by offering <laughs> that. Like, you would just do that for me? Because sometimes like, that's the big hurdle is people are it just really like, I don't is. even know what to say. Or they're embarrassed maybe that they don't know exactly how to explain what we do and the language right. we want. Right. I mean, I don't, <laughs> I've spent, I've wasted a lot of time in, in work, you know, sweating about writing an email. Exactly. And so if you're like, I don't want to do it, I think I'll go do this instead. You come back an hour later, it's still not done. But then if someone would just send it to you and all you could do is hit forward. I hit forward. I'm a genius, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So how do you prepare for board meetings? That, wow. Well, it's different for every board meeting, I will say. One of the things we do is we map out at the beginning of the year at a very high level, what do we hope to think about in we we do quarterly board meetings. Mm. So what are some of the topics we want to make sure we cover? 
And when are we going to do them? Again, mm-hmm. things always come up and things change, but I can say like in the fall, we tend to like to do a report on what was our impact in schools the last year. Mm-hmm. Um, in the spring before our annual fundraiser, we tend to like to have a meeting that focuses on the fundraiser and some of the outreach that we need to have, things like that. We, te- we like to have one of our board meetings at a school site so that we can talk more about what we do in that school. That's interesting. You almost have a content calendar for your board meetings. Exactly. And we try to set that out. And then, like I said, we try to follow it. I would say it works like 60% of the time. That's not bad. It's not bad. It's not bad. It's helpful. So with that, we knowing that basic content calendar, we work really closely with our executive committee, which is the chairs of all of our committees and our board chair, to think about we look at two sides, what work do we need to get done? And then what would be of interest to our board members? And we try to balance the two so that there is, um, it's not just us talking to our board. There's, we try to have some portion of it be learning or interaction or education for our board members. Mm -hmm. So what committees do you have on the board? So we have a governance committee that focuses on governance for lack of a better word, um, onboarding and offboarding our board members. Um, we do a board survey, um, each year, thinking through the logistics of things like that. So they keep the board running. They keep the board running, exactly. Sort of the behind the scenes um, in the weeds group. We have a communications committee, pretty self-explanatory. We have government relations committee. We have um, a committee that focuses on our annual gala. We have an executive committee that's made up of all the chairs of okay. all of our other committees. So how do you keep activity and momentum going in between meetings? So there's the... I'm assuming like the committees meet between meetings, right? The committee, yes. Do they meet? Oh, yeah. yeah. Sorry, I thought you meant about each board member. So yeah. yeah. So our our board meets collectively quarterly, and we have each committee meet quarterly in the off months. If yep. that makes sense. So they have met once, and you organize that. You're not leaning on the committees to organize themselves. We have a staff point for each committee. So okay. there is a staff member who is responsible for staffing the board, the chair of that committee, to help make the committee meet. And I would say we try as best we can to have them meet in person. Sometimes they meet via phone. But our goal is to have them meet four times a year off cycle from the quarterly board meetings. That's great. And then individuals, like keeping them um, engaged in between board meetings, what's the strategy there? So our executive director and I meet weekly, actually, to talk about board members and what's going on and making sure that everyone's needs are met and that we're responding to things and just checking in. Um, And then quarterly, our larger board engagement team. So anyone that's responsible for for working with the board meets again to check in on what's going on, where we are with our goals and our plans and any issues that have arisen. Um, And so between that, we end up meeting very frequently. Um, My role actually as chief of staff was created to help assist the executive director with board engagement because it was something we wanted to do really thoughtfully. And I think it takes a lot of time to do it really well. Yeah. And it sounds like you are very thoughtful about it. And I'm actually, I knew you did a lot with the board because we've known each other for a long time, but I'm so, I'm so impressed. And I'm so, I was taking notes through the whole thing of like, that's a great idea. That's a great idea. So a lot of trial and error, but yeah, we're, we're getting there. Oh gosh. Well, thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure. So one thing I was uh, impressed with with their 30-person advisory board is how they make individual plans for each advisory board member. They're really tailoring that experience for each person. Do you think that it's reasonable for other nonprofits to spend that much time 
Yes, in the sense I think every nonprofit should think about engaging their board, figuring out how they get the most out of their board. Are they able to do it at a level that City Year is because they have people who solely that's their job is to engage and and utilize those particular assets to the organization? And that's what good boards of directors are. They're strategic assets for the organization. Of course not. But that's, you know, there are... There are large nonprofits in this country that get to play by different rules and they've earned those rules. And so it's important for smaller nonprofits to look around and try to emulate best practices. But it doesn't mean that your local, you know, homeless shelter needs to have 30 members on their board and have somebody whose job it is is to spend how to, you know, engage those 30 board members. Most organizations struggle with finding six or eight really good board members. And so telling them that they'd have to have another 24, um, they'd just close up and go home. Sure. Well, I think realistically with most boards, you have maybe you have 12 people on it and then probably seven or eight very engaged people. Sure. And I think that every board should have term limits. You know, there's nothing saying that after you cycle off, if you're that great a board member, you can't come back at a later point. Um, But somewhere between four and eight years is plenty of time to be on a board. And at that point, I think that, you know, there's an obligation on both parts to step off. Um, We're all replaceable and bring in some some fresh blood, bring in some new perspectives, allow you to energize and make sure that you really care about that organization and really want to, you know, give them that kind of time and commitment. But we don't need to have board members for life. There's um, I think it's a library organization in Minnesota that has every year has an, a board member emeritus dinner. So anyone that has been a board member comes back and has dinner and the board members talk about how awesome that network has become. And I think that's a really smart idea. I've, I don't see anyone else doing that. Oh, absolutely. Anything you can do to keep those people in the fold, because, you know, those are your best advocates. They will proselytize in terms of the organization. They will raise money on behalf of the organization. You know, every nonprofit struggles from, you know, loss of institutional memory. Um, So if you can keep those people close to the organization, that is a really smart strategic decision. But you don't need to have all those people stay on your board for four meetings a year um, in perpetuity. Um, When you're giving grants, what do you look for in the board of directors? You know, I'm not looking for the big name. I run into nonprofits all day long who want me to help them get the giant name on their board. A, I can't do that. And B, I don't really care. I don't care whether you have a big name on your board. I'm looking for alignment between executive staff and the board. If they have a shared vision and they don't have to agree on everything, there should be some push, some pull. They should disagree semi-regularly. You know, one is in the weeds every single day and the other one is able to see it um, from a mile high and perhaps see the sector around them and see the external factors that are at play. It's good for them to have disagreements, but to have it in a professional way and to agree on the general outcome and the general direction of the organization. So I'm primarily looking for just a really good healthy, respectful working relationship between board, especially, you know, the executive committee on the board um, and senior staff and, you know, and board members who don't think it's their job to run the organization on a day to day basis. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, when when I go on site visits and I ask about, you know, what's going on on a day to day basis and the board member feels it's their job to answer that question. It's a bad sign. I I don't want to hear it from them. I want to hear it from the staff member because they're there every day, I assume, and they know what's going on. And then I will turn to the board member and I will ask them what the long-term strategic goal is, what the fundraising goal is, what you're doing to diversify the organization, how you're reacting to external conditions, those types of things. But when it comes to what do you do here every day, I want to hear it from the staff. It's interesting that your, your take on a bad board is like a board that's too involved. Yes. 
I think that's I think that that is accurate in many cases. And that's that that's a bad sign for the organization. Um, because, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Because even at its most talented, a board member usually has something else going on in their life. And so if they feel that it's their job to try to run the organization in some way or another, they're A, going to create dissension among the, the paid staff, but B, they're not going to do a very good job because, you know, you make your money at a nonprofit on Tuesday mornings at 11 o'clock when there's no one else there and no one's paying attention um, because that's when the real work is done. And that's the kind of thing that needs to be done by staff, not by an overreaching board member. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. Um, so do foundation officers make good board members? Sometimes. Um, you know, the old adage about foundations of, you know, if you've talked to one foundation, you've talked to one foundation. <laughs> I have no, I've not heard that. So, you know, we're all different. Some foundation officers make good board members. You know, they do have the advantage of having seen a lot of organizations, seen, seen good things, seen bad things. But sometimes, you know, some foundation executives or officers make lousy board members because they're focused on the wrong things in some way or another. But, you know, everybody wants you to be on the board, but they want you on the board because they think that you're going to write the check that comes with it. Sure. Um, and that's fine. But, you know, I, I hope that's not why everybody looks for board members. That's a donor. If the organization, if the person doesn't bring anything to the table except a check, cultivate that check. But you don't need to have the person in your board meetings on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, I think sometimes um, being on the board is a can for some people be a path to being very disinterested. Like once they see how the sausage is made, they it's it's a drag. Be careful what you wish for. Yeah, you know, you you bring somebody in. It's like we talked about at some point about events. I mean, you know, don't have an event if you don't think that it's going to wow donors. It's the same way with board members, which is, you know, don't invite somebody to your board meeting unless you think that when they come to the board meeting and they see what you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis, they really get excited and really get energized and want to write a bigger check yeah. and bring their friends on board. But if you think they're just going to come and do it out of obligation because your organization is so-so, then you're better off finding somebody else. Yeah, I'm a big proponent in board meetings starting off with a mission moment and something about the program and some really great, here's what we're up to and this is the story that we have from last week instead of starting right in on financial statements. That's a great point. You want board members who are excited. Yeah, you have to you be know, excited. And I don't think the path of being excited is looking at a balance sheet all the time. That's a great point. Maybe we so. probably should do that better at my organization. Is that how you're starting with a balance sheet? Yeah, we start by <gasps> reviewing the minutes, right? Yeah. I mean, isn't that oh, what every yeah. board meeting does? We have to, for some insane reason, everybody has to approve minutes from a meeting yeah, from that's three right. months ago. My favorite thing is to second. Yes, yes. And Let's it gets just, in there. It's so fun. Julie seconded. And I'm like, yes. Yeah. I will, I will fight someone to second. I have my fun. Yeah, there you go. Everybody <laughs> gets their silent pleasures. All right. Well, thanks so much, Trent. It's a pleasure, as always. That's all for today's episode of How We Run. Please check out goodwaysinc.com to find past episodes of this podcast and other tips about working in nonprofit. If you have any questions you want me to ask a funder on this podcast, you can tweet me at goodwaysinc. Please subscribe to How We Run on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and leave us a rating and a review. Thank you for listening. I'm Julie Lacature, and we'll see you next week for another new episode.